Lord, we are so thankful for this day. We thank you for the space to meet. Lord, we praise you. We love you. Thank you, Lord, that you are great and awesome, even when we have technical difficulties or other kinds of random things, Lord. Um, but I just ask if you, everyone in this room would just pray with me. That uh, God, God would help you into today. Um, I just reminded of the people of Israel when Ezra found the wall, and after the, the the temple was built and the walls were built by Nehemiah, and they found the wall and they read the law to the people, and the people were very attentive to the hearing of the word of God because they hadn't heard it in such a long time. And by the hearing of the word, they praised you, Lord. I ask for forgiveness for people of this country and people of this world, Lord, that we need fancy things and, and hard time being attentive. We're so distracted by television and our stupid phones. And Lord, I pray that you would give us focus this morning, focus on your word, not focus on what I have to say, but focus on the word of God. And that by that, Lord, that you would uh, lead us to worship. That it would lead to conviction. That it would lead to faith. May it lead to uh, self-examination, which leads to change in our hearts. Lord, I pray for everyone here and other people who are going to services today. They would be attentive to your word. Lord, we pray for those who are here because of traveling or other other reasons, maybe sickness. Lord, we pray for them, and we pray for other things going on in our in our church and our midst. Lord, we pray, Lord, pray, Lord, for strugglings, and we pray for just uh, things that we're we have anxiety about, things that were that are happening in the future that we don't know how they're going to uh, come out. Lord, we and it fills us with anxiety, it fills us with worry. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and trust in you. Lord, may you uh, do a wonderful thing uh, this day. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who weren't able to uh, come out on Wednesday night to watch the Luther documentary, we we're going to show it again tonight at my house at 6. Um, and watching it, I really encourage you to come and, and come and see that. And it was really well done. It's a documentary that was uh, that was um, put together by by several people that were involved in Lincoln Ministries with R.C. Sproles. Um, and uh, it's very, very good. It's very informative. Um, and so if you're kind of uh, iffy or a little uh, fuzzy on the history of the Reformation and don't really understand all the nuances of it, I would encourage you to come. And again, it's really well done. It's about an hour and a half, so it's not like a three-hour drudgery of just information and things like that but it's an hour and a half it's very very well done it's very good and so really do that six o'clock uh, if you don't know where i live i can give you address and love for y'all to be a part of that um, so it's our last sermon in this kind of three-week mini-series here on uh, the reformation and 
thank you, Joe, for putting it together that graphic, which was really helping to help you to understand that it's not just an historical event that we're looking at, but looking at God's work over the last 500 years since the Reformation, since October 31st, 1517. And uh, Joe's graphic definitely explains that very well. Um, so Philippians chapter 1, we, we see Paul uh, basically praying for this church in Philippi. And um, towards the end, we can, he kind of stops after verse 6 and kind of talks about them, how he feels about them, and then kind of gets into, in verse 9, again, praying for them and praying for certain things uh, that he wants God to, to do in their life. Um, so just kind of a, the main idea for today is that uh, God glorifies himself alone through our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture. And as an introduction, I really want to talk about a character of the story of the Reformation that maybe you don't know about, but it's extremely important. And if you're really kind of those people like me that say, even in historical events, you need a good guy and a bad guy, right? You need the good guy. Martin Luther is the good guy. Where's the bad guy? Well, Louis, Pope Louis, uh, Leo X is the bad guy. And when it comes to great uh, God's glory alone, he really is helpful in understanding the kind of God alone. Louis the Ten, I mean Leo the Ten, I'm gonna say Leo uh, Leo the was Pope when Martin Luther nailed the ninety five theses in October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. He was a patron of the arts. He was born in fourteen seventy five and raised in the city of Florence, which was the epicenter of like cultural sophistication. Basically it was the Los Angeles of Italy. He was born into a very wealthy family who were renowned patrons of the arts. It is said that uh, Leo X became one of the most extravagant of all the popes. Immediately, he demonstrated his appreciation of art by initiating a massive building project to beautify the Vatican. He commissioned Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in St. Peter's Cathedral. Pomp and extravagance of his court was indirect cause of the Reformation, come to acquire the enormous sum of money for renovations. He himself indulgences, which was a promise of relief from eternal penalties. And Sean talked about that the first week about indulgences and the kind of the history of that. So the Pope viewed himself, in a sense, as a king, palace, and a court. And he wanted his palace court to rule the courts of England and France and the Holy Roman Empire. So he wasn't just a religious leader who had a church and he wanted his church to be beautiful. He viewed himself as a king. And he viewed himself, he viewed St. Peter's Cathedral as his palace, as his court. And he wanted it to be just as beautiful and just as gorgeous and extravagant as the kings of Europe and the monarchs of Europe. Obviously, that was one of the reasons and one of the problems that Martin Luther had with the whole establishment. Luther wrote in the 95 Theses his criticism of the church says, why doesn't the Pope just build the Basilica of St. Peter's out of his own money? He comes from a rich family. Why does he just build it himself with his own money, being the money from the people? So Pope, the Pope and the Catholic Church cared far more for their own glory rather than the glory of God. And that was, again, one of the reasons why that was one of the cries of the glory of God alone, because the Catholic Church was giving themselves glory. They were they were they were selling indulgences uh, for the sake of building more beautiful buildings, which would give them more glory, and especially the Pope, more glory. So I want to talk about three points, and the first point is 
a continual abounding love for God and each other glorifies God's work in us. A continual abounding love for God and each other glorifies his work in us. So in verse 9, he says that uh, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he's talking about the abounding love that, that these Christians for, for what abounds a given object, does he? He says that love may abound but where's the object? Who are they loving? Is it just God? Is praying that their each other would grow, uh, that, their, that their love would grow just for God, or is it uh, is it growing uh, for each other? What is he talking about? I think Paul is is talking about the comprehensive love that should be continually growing in our lives towards God and each other, towards one another as fellow believers in Christ, and love for the world, and the love for the lostness, and understanding the. the, the need for these people to understand the gospel and also love God. So it's a very comprehensive love. He's not, he's not one, a comprehensive thing where he not only for God, but also for other. And that this love is abound. So according to a growing knowledge of God, that should lead to abounding love for God and each other. So when we talk about the knowledge of God, or one thing we want to talk about is worship. That's why I pray that we're I think for a lot of us, we come to church and we go to Bible studies, and really we're just kind of in the motions. It's our weekly Bible study that we go to, or it's the weekly service that we go to. It's just something that we do every week. And we're really not that attentive to what we hear, or even in our own quiet times. So routine and habit that we even pick up our Bibles and we're not even attentive to what we read and it doesn't actually soak and affect our hearts. When we talk about growing in the knowledge of God, that our knowledge would grow and to abound in love for God and for each other, we have to grow and continually grow in the knowledge of God. So we have to have an eagerness to learn about God. We have to study, we have to listen, we have to take notes when people are that we really get understand what is being spoken. There has to be an eagerness to learn. And um, one of the things that really caught my eye, me and Denton went to Iowa State, went to a conference at a church that's made up of mostly college students. And they have this college night, it's on Thursday. And there's a ton of students. And they have like this massive band and like be almost just different things. But what's so interesting, what really caught my eye is when the, the guy who was preaching came up to preach, most of the students got out their Bibles, opened it, and started taking notes. Like their eagerness to learn what was being preached from the Word of God, that is what impressed me, that 18 to 22-year-olds are eager, after going to class all week, are eager to continue to learn and learn about God's Word. And so I think for us, if you really want to get as much out of a Sunday morning sermon, or even if you're listening, to a, a sermon on a podcast or whatever, or even if you're reading a, a manuscript, reading a book, and you really want to learn, you should write things down to help you remember. If you, if I say something that you disagree with or something that you're just not really sure or you're confused, you should definitely email me your question or your, con, or, or your confusion or if you disagree. It, what tells me if you're disagreeing with me that you're attentive, eager to learn or... Text me what you think. Email, what, email me what you think. Tell me 
speak, if it's a disagreement or an agreement, if I say something you're just completely disagreeing with, please tell me. At least it tells me that you're attentive, you're eager to learn. To, to grow the knowledge of God, which then leads to abounding love, we have to have an eagerness to learn. And it's not just being attentive and, and reading books and taking notes and being a good student of the word. For God's word, to grow in knowledge of it, to continue to grow in knowledge of it, we have a passion for it. But this dead Christianity, which is kind of an oxymoron for dead Christianity, dead Christianity is a lack of knowledge about God. You think about the people of Israel, what caused their religion to die was their lack of knowledge of God. Emotion alone is not good enough. You can't just, just gum into your relationship with and just and just be excited and expect, expect that's going to help you abound in love for God for one another. There has to be an eagerness to know and to grow in knowledge of God. Love of tradition or yourself somewhat an issue, especially in churches that seems like they're faithful to God's word, but yet their goodness is that truly the traditions in themselves and they don't truly love God's word. This uh, refusing to change this. Refusal to, to, to do things that will help each other learn and to grow in the knowledge of God. What they really love is not God's word, but they love traditions and themselves, hence the lack of passion. Love must be saturated in truth. It must be soaked in truth. You know, uh, the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, is wrong. You, it, you need more than just love. You need truth. Love must be saturated and soaked in truth. Uh, Rob book love wins the problem with rob bell's book is doesn't have any truth in it it's absence of truth and when it's absence of truth you truly can't love treated in truth god did not save you simply with love if he just saved you out of love then we would be in a universalist who said it doesn't really matter what you believe it doesn't matter what your decisions are it doesn't really matter all that matters that god loves you therefore he saved you but truth as is the truth of sin that we are broken that the that we have fallen from god and that salvation is through judgment not just through god just says i love you god loves you through the judgment of his son that there's truth to that and that god didn't just save you because he likes you he saves you because you are his creation but you also because you're broken and you cannot save yourself that is truth that is true and that truth saturates his love what is true is that you're a sinner who recognizing your desire deserve judgment put your faith in the loving work of Christ on the cross salvation what is not true is god loves you whatever you do and are just know he loves you therefore truth and knowledge is irrelevant love is always associated with truth joyful christianity is the proper and his cross which then leads to empathy the lost, empathy for the poor in spirit, empathy for those who suffer, a desire to bring justice to the unjust. God's issue with the people of Israel, again, was their lack of knowledge of God. He says this in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 6. They had no faithful love. They were, Ezekiel 6 says that they were haughty, that they, in a sense that they love the people of the world. And the reason why they didn't love people, the reason why they were unfaithful in their love is because they lacked knowledge of God. The lack of attention to God's word led to unfaithful love 
It led to haughtiness. It led to this stubborn heartedness, this stubborn spirit, which led to judgment. And have love for people and one another because they lack knowledge of God. So God says that according to a growing and also according to a growing wisdom or discernment, he says in verse 9, combining knowledge and the understanding of the best course of action results in the bounding love for each other. So what is our love for each other? What should it look like? We should pray for each other. As Paul is praying for the, the church of Philippi, he's praying for these He loves them. He cares for them. So he prays for them. And he prays very particularly, he prays not just that they would be rich. He doesn't pray that they would get the house that they want or the job that they want or that they would be healthy in their their bodies. He prays for spiritual things for them. I think we have to be really careful in 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 our church community, not just pray for things that truly don't really matter in the long scheme of things. You know, it's that you we pray for them. That is a good thing saying don't do that but too often our prayer requests deal with the physical things and not the spiritual thing and the spiritual things are the more important things or we should learn from paul to pray for each other and pray and say ask questions like how are you doing spiritually what are some things i can pray for you that will grow that you will grow in your life will grow in spiritual wisdom that we'll see spiritual growth in your life. Think of even Paul's experience. I think mean, we forget Paul's experience. You think about Paul's experience. He was once an enemy of the church, right? And what happened to him on the road to Damascus? Well, he saved. I mean, he's completely transformed by Christ and goes to the church. He goes looking for the church and they're afraid of him for obvious reasons, right? Afraid of him because they know Paul. They know the the uh, what he has done. They know, saw how when Stephen was martyred, how they took the their robes and they, their cloth and garments and laid them to the feet of of Saul of Tarsus, who is Paul. And what does Barnabas do? Barnabas is not afraid. He loves Paul. He goes to because he recognizes the transformed nature of Paul because of Christ. There's a story, I, I, I just thought this, that goes along. There's a story, um, it's very fascinating, it's in the book, um, The Company Man, which is about the CIA. In, in the 1980s, Bin Laden, or the, um, um, kind of the, the number one terrorist at that time, called the Jackal. And uh, the, so the CIA was looking for him, and it was kind of like similar with Bin Laden, there was this manhunt for him, and they were up to find him and capture him. And he was... I, he didn't like kill as many people as Bin Laden did. He was he was known to plot several terrorist attacks throughout the nineteen eighties. And there was his kind of his right hand man, one of one of his associates, that at one point who was also helped um, this terrorist uh, attempt to try to kill Americans through bombings and these different things. Um, this guy was filled with guilt for his actions, and so he approached the CIA about being a spy for them. He didn't want any money. He wasn't bribed in doing this. He did it out of his own free will because he was just guilty for his actions. And he stopped. He wanted to stop trying. He wanted to stop killing people. And he wanted to help uh, bring the right people to justice. And when he, so he was spying for the CIA. And actually, because of his work, they were able to capture this terrorist that was kind of the, they were a long time. And after a while, this 
CIA decided that they didn't want um, the uh, they didn't want the government actually associating with known. They didn't want the American government uh, paying money to or using the intelligence of former terrorists or former uh, people who have committed crimes against the American government. And so, in a sense, they approached this guy and said uh, they told him this, and they basically, said, oh, we're not no longer going to take what you say, and we're not. Uh, where I could use you as an agent anymore. Or, this guy basically walked away and was eventually killed by the people that he was flying against. It tells the story is, is that he didn't do this out of a bribery. He didn't do this for money. He did it because he was felt guilty for what he, what, he's, what he was doing, and he wanted to amend what he did, and the American government disassociated them, themselves with him. And it tells you the great thing about Paul is that Paul was in a similar situation. I mean, he had committed crimes against the church. Many had been put in prison. Many had been uh, because of him. When Christ saved him, when he was transformed, Barnabas especially loved him and accepted him and ignored the things of his past and loved him for what he was now. Within the church, I think we have a tendency to not continue not to ignore the things of the past continue to people have done in the past and not ignoring them and, and keeping and keeping distance between our, each other because of in christ we are all new we are cleansed we have been redeemed we are new people we have been transformed and we just don't show deep love for you some of us in this room have a some of us are really, really good friends. Some of us are very, very close. Some of us spend a lot of time together. But some of us build helpful walls between each other. Some of us separate. Love is never established. Deep love is never cultivated. Prayer is never done between each other. There's a need to let go of insecurities, let go of preferences. Galatians chapter 6, Paul says that we need to carry each other's burdens. That doesn't work well within a prearranged schedule, carrying each other's burdens. Work really well within preferences. And abounding love seeks to love people regardless. Regardless. Regardless of insecurities, regardless of preferences, regardless of schedules. And some of you come, but you stop. You come to church, but you stop there. of us don't allow the people in this room to love each other and experience the love that we should have between each other. People in this room need friendships. They need love. They need people who are going to put aside insecurities and preferences and prearranged schedules and just love them and adopt them into their family, into their home, eating dinner with them, playing games with them, going on vacations. Churches, people in churches don't do that enough. Especially in this church, we don't do that enough. We put way too many walls, way too many separation. It's insecurities and preferences and prearranged schedules. Wouldn't it be countercultural if people say, well, what do y'all do for vacation? And our answer is, well, we go on vacation with people in our church. Looking at the relationships in our lives, how does the Bible instruct you to love each person in your life? Your parents, your employers, your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your children, your spouse. Would actions like these not glorify God if we loved our parents the way that we should love our parents? For some of us, not honor our parents, and we're in our 40s. 
we don't honor our parents and we're in our 30s or 20s. We're like, well, I'm not a child anymore, so I don't have to give my parents any honor. That is not true. You still must honor your parents and love them and care for them. And wouldn't the world be just so flabbergasted by our love for people in our lives that most people have a hard time loving? That's what Paul prays for, that their love would bound more and more for each other. Number two is that continual ability to identify and do the better things that glorify his work in us. He says in verse 10, saying that so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So basically Paul is saying love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, which then leads to that you would be approved or you approve what is excellent. Approving through testing what is best is really what Paul is referring to. Being able to test what is the best or the, or the better in a particular situation or in a life. Um, great story about McDonald's French fries. I've said this to a few people. I think it's a story. But you know, pre-1990, French fries at McDonald's. Before 1990, they used a bat formula to make French fries. But there was a man from somewhere who decided that he wanted to go, he wanted to kind of start this campaign against Cetric. And he successfully caused McDonald's to change their formula for French fries. So that today, most of your French fries are made in an unstable fat, which is kind of like a type of oily type of. So they did this testing. They, this person wanted to show French fries has because of all these different changes. And they had the Young uh, 20-something-year-olds test three different styles of McDonald's French fries. They had the pre-1990, about the 19 to 2000, the 2000s to today. They tested these fries, and all of them overwhelmingly said that the French fries made in the beef fat were so much better than made today. They were able to approve very easily what was the best option. what is best. What Paul is saying that is that through discernment and wisdom that we would be able to approve what is excellent and best. Paul said this about the book in Philippians talking about that he has, he has uh, basically said that the world are, 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 are garbage are, are compared to the, the knowledge of, of Christ. He even says in chapter 4, proving what is excellent and good Proving what is best, and then living according to those identifications. Christians are progressives. We believe in progress. Progress. We we believe in progressive character rather than progressive politics. I love verse six of chapter one, where he says, uh, "And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ." You don't have a choice as in when it comes to your growth and your sanctification. Because becoming a Christian, you should examine and reflecting on verse 6. I mean, you really don't. If you're kind of on the being a Christian or not, you may want to read verse 6. Basically, what it's saying is, is that if you choose to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, that it will change you. It will transform you into the image of Christ. You have no choice. Here's your choice. Do you want to follow Christ or not? Because the outcome or the byproduct of putting your trust in Christ is that you will approve what is excellent and good. If you don't want to become, do you, do you want to become a person who, through testing and fear and trembling, become like Christ? 
For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him. How do we do that? By proving what is the proving what is good and better. And by doing that, it makes us pure. It makes us holy. It makes us ones who choose the things of God and not the things of this world. And purity and holiness is excellence. I don't know if we're convinced of that statement. I don't believe, I believe that we want to believe it and live it. We want to believe that following God and excellent and better. I think we want to believe it, but we have a hard time actually believing that. We are plagued by unbelief. I am plagued by unbelief. Believing the fact that really for me, but for my family and my children is the things of God, not the things of this world. And the best thing for my children is not how smart they are, how much money they make, but how much they trust and obey God. I think a lot of parents want to believe that, but we all know we, parents have a hard time truly believing kids to God. Holiness will make us blameless. Some of us are plagued by guilt and shame and fear. So we float around numb to God's word and worship. We crawl or worse, we remain completely crippled by the weight of our sin. And I'm not sure you look forward to Christ's return because we're just plagued by sin. We're just plagued by shame. And we're just, most of our life is crippled. We're, we, we have a hard time walking with any confidence, without with any true uh, conviction. We're afraid that when Christ returns right now to this day at this room, we would be so afraid because he would discover our unbelief, that he would discover our regrets. Whether we should view Christ's return as a wedding day, that this life is about preparation and getting ready. And for you, I don't know about you ladies, but I know for me as a man, before I got married, I mean, I was getting ready. I mean, I worked out more before I got married than I did it. I was like eating differently because I was like, you want to be like at your best. Like that's kind of, most men are like that. And I know for, I don't know for women, but I know there's this anticipation for that day. We want to, that's why we pick a beautiful dress that we love and that makes us cry when we choose it. And these type of things, we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. So if our lives are about glorifying him alone, then we must identify what is excellent in an evil world and do them. Praying that the Holy Spirit within us will give us faith, asking others to keep us accountable. Having someone in your life who is honest with you is precious. Too often we, and I'm going to say this moronically, moronically, want to only hear what makes us feel validated. You know, the choir, right? Like we just want to be validated. We want to be told everything that we're doing right. That's a good person to have in your life. But if you don't have someone who will be honest with you, you are in trouble. Hearing what is true and helpful. Your mom and dad dad can make pressure. Find a friend who will be honest. Quickest way to stay immature is to surround yourself with shallow, uninspiring relationships. Point number three is the last one is a continual harvest of Christ-centered actions that glorify his work in us. I gotta get really quick. The last verse here, we see the the position or the source, the source of our fruits of righteousness is Christ. 
that comes through Jesus Christ. So our position as being a child of God, God, or who follows Christ, who's a disciple of Christ, ones who are citizens of Christ's kingdom, the, the, the position is our connection, our association to the source of the fruits of righteousness, which is Christ. Growth in your life, spiritual growth in your life, maybe you should ask the question, are Christ? Abide in me, and I in you, and I will produce in your life, John 15. There's a, an interesting story that I read this week about Lawrence of Arabia uh, during World War One, and he brought some of the Bedouins that he fought with against the, the Axis powers, he brought, them, he brought them to London, and they uh, stayed in this like fancy London hotel. And you know about Bedouins who lived out in the desert, like water is very scarce, right? They went to the bathroom and saw this faucet, and they turned on the faucet, water comes, just like, wow, miracle. So what they did, they, they, they cut off or they smashed the faucet and took that sucker in a tree or something and water would come out or they would just, it would just flow water. And Lord's Raven just caught the faucet. The problem was, is that they wasn't connected to the source of the water. So if we're not in Christ, we will not produce fruits of righteousness. Why? And if we are not in Christ, if we're not growing in the knowledge of God, then we're not going to abound in love for one another. Also, at least we're not going to prove what is the best and excellent thing in an evil age, holiness and purity. And the last thing, we will glorify God. Our lives will not glorify God. I want to end with, with this, the chief end of a church. When, uh, when Bach would write his compositions and his music, he always signed it with SDG. So I Gloria, for, glor- for God alone, receive all the glory in this piece of music. I think for us, and especially for churches, we have a hard time, our focus being God's glory alone. Sometimes it's a pastor's glory. We want the glory, we want to, to, to kind of use some method or convince the world that we are uh, God's gift to you. And so therefore we have all this knowledge and, and insight and wisdom and we just need to give it to you. I heard J.D. Greer preach this week and he said that preachers are the worst because we get to wrap around all our, our, um, our desire for glory, wrap it up in ministry and get away with it and justify it. Because we're pastors, therefore, we're not really doing it for our glory. We're doing it for God, but really, we're really doing it for our glory. Too often, congregations are led by men who want to glorify themselves and not God. Or maybe it's a a group of people. Like our church was started by a group of people. Maybe it's for us. Maybe we want to glorify ourselves. We want to tell people of Evansville or the state of Indiana, look at us. Look how great we are. Look at the church that we built. Look Look at all the things that we're doing. Or maybe it's our denomination. We want to prove that the Southern Baptist Convention is better than any other denomination. We want to be, we want to go to the Baptist Convention and say, look at the church that we started. People are, how many people are baptized? And we get excited about that. And what's that all about? It's all about our own glory, not God's glory. So what does that mean? To be like God's glory alone, not your own glory. The gospel going forth in this city and beyond is more important in the success or failures of this particular church. We need partners, 
need to partner with like-minded churches. We need to partner with like-minded ministries so the gospel will go forth and God's name is magnified. That's all that matters. Even if it means that this church has to close its doors because we are too focused on God's glory and the gospel going forth. Are you willing to be a part of that? Are you willing to be a part of a church that potentially literally cuts his own off so that God will be glorified? Who actually produces more churches, even though every time you plant a church, that means 10 of you or 20 of you have to leave us and go plant the church. And that means there's less people, less money, less resources, but it doesn't matter because God is glorified more by that than us being glorified. Are you willing to be a part of that? People becoming disciples of Christ and becoming faithful members of a faithful Bible-believing church is more important than the success or failure of this particular church. We must become small so that he becomes great, John the Baptist. Willing to partner with other churches so that his name may cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. Sacrifice money and resources so that churches are planted or ministries are supported that reach the ends of the earth with the gospel so that every corner of the city, state, country, and world has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.D. Greer, church, the Summit Church in North Carolina, a desire to plant a thousand churches in one generation. And he even says, he says, every time they plant a new church, less people go, more people go away. Good people, people that you don't want to lose in your church, they go away. It hurts every time you do it. You don't really want to send them because you don't want them to leave. Because if they leave, that means, therefore, you're not going to receive as much of the glory. You have less people in the seats. I'm not about glorifying myself. I'm not about glorifying you. And I'm not about glorifying Redeemer Fellowship Church. So I want to challenge us to think that way, to think, how do we glorify God alone, not ourselves? Let our prayer be that Redeemer and me and others disappear and God's name is magnified. That people look at this church and see Christ and not see just a church. Or they look at Redeemer and say, wow, God is doing some amazing things in our city. Not that Redeemer is doing amazing things in this city. May that be our prayer. May we stand by that. Thank you.